Good evening. Good afternoon, buddy. We are resuming our study of healing, and we are probably going to finish tonight. I say that and watch us not finish, but we're going to try our best. But anyways, uh, we're talking today first about Acts chapter 28. And so if you take your Bibles there, turn to Acts chapter 28, and we're going to start in verse 17, and we're going to talk about Paul when he's in Rome, and he's preaching to the Jews there the kind of response that he gets. And then we're going to tie into this some other verses that are really interesting because they do deal with healing, but they show somewhat of a trend in the ministry of Paul. Things started to shift around this Acts 28 time period. So Acts 28, verse 17, it says, And it came to pass that after three days, Paul called the chief of the Jews together. And when they were come together, he said unto them, Men and brethren, Though I have committed nothing against the people or customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans, who, when they had examined me, would have let me go, because there was no cause of death in me. But when the Jews spake against it, I was constrained to appeal unto Caesar, not that I had ought to accuse my nation of. For this cause, therefore, have I called for you, to see you, and to speak with you, because that for the hope of Israel I am bound with this chain. And they said unto him, We neither receive letters out of Judea concerning thee, neither any of the brethren that came showed or spake any harm of thee. But we desire to hear of thee what thou thinkest. For as concerning this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. And when they had appointed him a day, there came many to him into his lodging, to whom he expounded and testified the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus... (laughs) both out of the law of Moses and out of the prophets from morning till evening. And some believed the things which were spoken and some believed not. And when they had agreed not among themselves, they departed after that Paul had spoken one word. Well spake the Holy Ghost by Isaiah the prophet unto our fathers, saying, Go unto this people and say, Hearing ye shall hear and shall not understand, and seeing ye shall see and not perceive. For the heart of this people is wax gross, and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes have they closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and should be converted, and I should heal them. Be it known therefore unto you that the salvation of God is sent unto the Gentiles, and that they will hear it. And when he had said these things, the Jews departed, and had great reasoning among themselves." And Paul dwelt two whole years in his own hired house and received all that came unto him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching those things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no man forbidding him. And that's how the gospel of Acts ends. That's one of the reasons why uh, many scholars believe Acts was written very early in the 60s AD, because it doesn't depict the death of Paul. Paul is the focus uh, halfway through the book of Acts. I mean, it shifts to him and his ministry. So for Luke to write Acts and not to include that account of his martyrdom highly suggests that it was written before Paul was put to death, which is, and this is incidental, of course, but for an apologetics purpose, if Acts was written before Paul died and he died around 68 AD is the traditional date given to that. If he died before that and Luke wrote his gospel before he wrote Acts, then we can say with confidence, okay, Luke was written in the early 60s. It's reasonable. 
Uh, Luke depends upon other gospels. And in chapter one, he even mentions that he had other eyewitness accounts available to him, which is probably a reference to at least Matthew Mm -hmm. and possibly Mark, which would mean Matthew and Mark were written before Luke. And so that's pushing those gospels into the 50s AD or even earlier than that. So this shows that these gospel accounts we have were not written hundreds of years after, but they're actually written right on top of the events. And so that's a, a really compelling argument that we can trust the gospel accounts. But again, that's incidental. I thought I'd throw that out there because I think it's a, a really good thing to bring up the people when they call into question uh, the history of the New Testament. But anyways, uh, as far as our study goes, Acts chapter 28, it seems to be um, hinting at, if not outrightly saying, that the Jewish people have become super hard-hearted. They're not listening to the gospel message. They're not listening to Paul. Uh, they debated among themselves, but I mean, he, he cites Isaiah here to show that the people as a whole have hardened their hearts and they're refusing to listen. And so then in verse number 28, he says, therefore, as a result of your hardness of heart, the salvation of God is sent unto who? The Gentiles. Gentiles. Now he had been preaching to the Gentiles already. So this makes you wonder, okay, when he says salvation is going into the Gentiles, what does this mean? I think that what Paul is saying here and many other scholars believe this Uh, Paul is now going to preach a gospel which is irrespective of Jew and Gentile. So in particular, because the Jews are not listening to his message, he's going to be spending more time among the Gentiles who are naturally more receptive. But early in his ministry, Paul preaches to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. There was one particular message that he really had to get across to the Jew before he could go over here to the Gentile. So there was some priority in his preaching. And that's why when he went into an area in a Gentile land, uh, generally Paul went to the synagogues and he would reason with the Jews there first. Of course, we see a pattern developing in his ministry. The Jews are refusing to listen. The Gentiles are accepting the gospel, but we see what Paul talked about in Romans 11 illustrated right here. The Jewish people are being hardened, and so God is taking the gospel to the Gentiles. We are currently still in the age of the Gentiles, the time of the Gentiles, and uh, God is bringing in the fullness of the Gentiles until the rapture happens. Mm -hmm. After that, we're going to pick back up with the time of the Jews. The Jews were cast off in 70 AD, not permanently, okay, because they have an unconditional covenant with God that he'll never break. Even if they're unfaithful and he disciplines them for a time, Uh, He's never going to fully cast off his people. But uh, here in Acts chapter 28, we see that casting off. And it would not be very long after Luke wrote this that the war between the Jews and the Romans would begin. So let's say this was written uh, around 62, 63 AD when it was written. Uh, Paul is imprisoned in Rome. Paul has not yet died. Well, the war with the Romans between them and the Jews was 66 AD. So, I mean, the war between the Romans and the Jews is about to start. There are probably rumors of it already at the time. And, uh, of course, that would culminate in the destruction of the temple. And so, anyways, Acts chapter 28 shows, even in Paul's ministry, there's this big shift of focus. It was to the Jew first before, and then you notice that his later letters, they don't mention to the Jew first. You see that in Romans. Right. Uh, but then as you keep reading like the prison letters, for example, when when Paul is in prison, he doesn't mention to the Jew first. And he even talks about, you know, the gospel just being preached to all men. God desires all to repent uh, and come to faith. And so anyways, let's look now um, at 
some letters that Paul wrote and what he says about healing in those places. Our we got a pirate in the room. Uh, our our little uh, baby over here, Jasher, is giving us some background noise. It's really cute. That's why I'm trying to focus Where as best going? I can. Philippians chapter 2, verse 27. We're just going to follow these references. And I, I want us to discuss um, the implications of what he says here. So in Philippians 2, 27, we'll back it up just a little bit, actually. Uh, in verse number 25, yet I supposed it necessary to send to you uh, Epaphroditus, my brother and companion in labor and fellow soldier, but your messenger and he that ministered to my wants for he longed after you all and was full of heaviness because that ye had heard that he had been sick for indeed he was sick nigh unto death, but God had mercy on him and not on him only, but on me also lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. So there's no so hint. So he didn't heal him. Yes, yes, that's the point. There's no hint here whatsoever that Epaphroditus is sick because of sin. All right, he is called a fellow servant, a fellow laborer, a brother. Uh, he ministered to Paul's needs. He's commended in glowing terms here. But yet when Paul was with them, Epaphroditus was so sick he was about to die. Mm. And Paul does not heal him. Um, Paul seems to in indicate that this was out of his control. He says in verse number uh, 27 again, uh, God had mercy on him. So God directly brought him back from his deathbed and not on him only, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I have no doubt that Paul was praying fervently in this time for Epaphroditus. Uh oh, there he goes. We love you, Jasher. Anyways, and the bouncing takes it away. But uh, anyways, Paul is clearly preaching during this time. God heals Epaphroditus, uh, answers Paul's prayer. But Paul doesn't mention anything about healing Epaphroditus. Yeah. So, well, again, this is an argument from silence, no doubt. But we have to, we have to mention this because you have a lot of people who will take the New Testament record about healing let's take paul for example yeah. how you know handkerchief has got some sweat of paul's on it people are being healed by paul's handkerchief you know mm -hmm. and, and they'll take that stuff and they'll try to apply it to ministry today right. okay but this right here indicates that that, that power that that's not something that always happened mm. and we have to ask why didn't it happen now well let's consider when it was written it was a prison epistle Okay, this is after Paul has been rejected by the Jews. And because of that, he has been handed over and he's jailed. So during this time, Paul doesn't seem, again, this is an argument from silence, okay? But it doesn't seem that Paul is using the gift of healing. Now, we know that he had the ability to heal people. Okay, and there's no reason to suggest that he couldn't heal Christians as much as he could heal unbelievers. So why doesn't Paul do that? That's the question, but let's look at some more verses here. Uh, let's look at first uh, Timothy five 23. This is a, a pretty famous verse. I would say, uh, you know, when it comes to another topic altogether, but first uh, Timothy five 23, um, he says to Timothy, drink no longer water, but use a little wine for thy stomach's sake and thine often infirmities. Okay, so it appears 
that Timothy, because he was wanting to be a good pastor, he was avoiding wine completely, which in their time, often they would mix wine in with the water to sanitize it. And right. he's apparently not doing that at all. Like he doesn't want to come across in any way as a drunkard to people. And so Paul is saying, it's okay. You can have some wine mixed with your water and that'll you know be easier on your stomach. But as some people have pointed out, you know, why doesn't Paul just have him healed? Um, if Paul had that gift to dispense that effect. He could have just sent his hanky to him. Yeah, he could just sent the hanky to him. Okay, so that's that's a thought. Okay, but there's one more. Let's look at uh, 2 Timothy 4.20. 2 Timothy 4.20. Uh, it mentions, he's talking about different people. And it's interesting, like the lives of these people. You know, you, you finish a letter of Paul and he's talking about all these individuals. He's naming them. You wish you could just have more information about them. These letters are very personal, but he mentions Erastus abode at Corinth, but Trophimus have I left at Miletum sick. So he left this guy sick. And again, there's no indication here whatsoever that Trophimus was a sinner. And so he was left sick. And this is somehow God's discipline upon him for his sin. Uh, it just appears that he's mentioning Trophimus as being sick. So that way the people that are receiving this letter, Timothy and his congregation, that they can pray for Trophimus. I mean, he's sick, right? Okay, so why doesn't he heal Trophimus? I mean, we know that he healed so many people. So I want to reference an article. Uh, I I don't have the name of the author off the top of my head, but I'll tell you how to find it, okay? Um, Thomas Constable has a really good commentary online that I highly recommend. And one of the reasons why I recommend it is even if you don't agree with all of what he says, he cites so many articles in his notes that you can just go to his notes if only to access those resources. So I would encourage you to look up these references that we're going through. Philippians 2.27, 1 Timothy 5.23, and 2 Timothy 4.20. Go to his notes and in one of those places, if not all of those places, he's going to mention an article by a fella uh, who points out how Paul at this time in his ministry doesn't seem to be healing people in the direct mm. manner that he once did. Instead, he is praying for people and he praises God when God directly intervenes and heals somebody. So again, when you talk about healing, it's really easy to get confused in all this. There needs to be a clear distinction between Paul healing somebody and God directly having mercy on somebody. Now it's true that God is ultimately the healer in either situation because Paul, Peter, any of the disciples, they couldn't have healed anyone if it wasn't for the authority of Christ. Okay. There's no question about that, but that type of healing was more direct. They were given authority. It was delegated authority to be sure, but they were still given authority to heal people. And they didn't always exercise this healing through prayer. They just, pronounced and it was done. But there are other situations where, for example, Epaphroditus in Philippians 2.27, um, he is prayed for and God has mercy on him. God mm-hmm. heals him. But that wasn't something that Paul could control. No matter how much faith Paul utilized in that situation, no matter how fervently he prayed, even laying hands on him, that wasn't going to accomplish mm-hmm. the goal of healing Epaphroditus. God had to do that. So, it appears, and this is the the contention that I have, okay? Uh, this is not the biggest argument. If you want to know why I think that the gift of healing has ceased, 
Um, we've already built on that. I'd encourage you just to go back and listen to this series and the other lessons we've had. Uh, I think there are a number of reasons why the gift of healing is no longer in effect today. But uh, I think that circumstantially, it is interesting that at the same time that Paul starts to shift his focus, no longer making the offer of the kingdom to the Jews, now going to the Gentiles. It's at that same shifting point that we see references like this in his letters mm -hmm. where people are sick. He's present in certain cases here, not Timothy's case, but he's present with Epaphroditus and he's present with Trophimus, but he doesn't heal these people. Because it was assigned to unbelieving Jews and so, that's going away. So again, yes, that's the contention that the article makes um, that I referenced. And again, I'm sorry, I don't have his, his name, but again, you can go to the reference uh, by Thomas Constable and you can read it yourself. Uh, probably for free online, but around 70 AD, that marks the end of the kingdom offer. Okay. And I think that it probably even ceased before then. I think that whenever Paul in Acts 28 turns away from them, it's kind of ominous because the war is about to begin. And while the temple wouldn't be destroyed for you know years to come, um, it's right around the bend. And so the Jews would be severed until during the tribulation, they would accept Christ. And only then will all Israel be saved like Paul talks about in Romans 11. So I would say that the kingdom is crucial in interpreting this shift between Paul healing people with a hanky and then Paul leaving people sick when he could have done something. Potentially, you would think, I mean, he has this authority. Why doesn't he use it on these people? So again, that's an argument from silence. That's why I think it's better to, to go back and listen to some of the other lessons where there's more positive proof. But I think circumstantially, this does confirm that whenever the kingdom offer is taken back, whenever Paul stops preaching to the Jew first, and now he's just going to the Gentiles, that signals a big change. Uh, we don't have any instances in the letters of John uh, that I'm aware of, uh, of him healing anybody in his mm. old age. Uh, we know that he was writing and these were inspired letters that he wrote because the church obviously had more things to learn before yeah. John passed, but we don't have any record of more apostles being chosen um, because those apostles were eyewitnesses of the resurrection. They were there at the time of his ministry. I mean, even Paul, you know, though he was, you know, begotten out of due time, you know, later on. Two years uh, in the wilderness. Yeah, he had that that particular instance on the road. But yes, in the wilderness as well, uh, I believe that he says in Galatians, you know, to that effect that when he was there, he had this revelation from Christ. And he didn't receive the gospel from men, but from mm -hmm. the Lord. But they had that. And um, we don't have any any instructions about how to choose apostles. The idea of Peter having successors like the Roman Catholic Church teaches, we just have nothing in Scripture to support any of that. So if we don't have any more apostles, we shouldn't expect any more books being written. And uh, if these miraculous acts that we read about in the book of Acts, um, if they were associated with apostolic authority, and in particular, the preaching of the kingdom gospel, which was unique to that time, we shouldn't expect to see healing in that particular sense happen. Again, the caveat here that I always want to emphasize uh, is we do see healing happen today. Okay. And, yes. and I, I, we do see it happen today. And, and I know testimonies of people that I know them personally. There are some that I don't know. And if they say something that seems a little bit out there, it's like, well, I need more proof. I don't want to just take your word for it because there's lots of fraud. Okay. Yep. And I think everybody can at least admit to that. 
Uh, but I have heard stories from people that I 100% trust and uh, their story of, of divine healing. Uh, it, it squares up perfectly with scripture. Uh, one fella went to church with back in the day. Um, he got injured in a factory accident and uh, his, his back was so bowed that one leg was significantly longer than the other. He was in so much pain, bowed over. He couldn't work. He went to the doctor and the time the doctor's like, there's nothing we can do to fix this. Like no surgery will be able to fix you. So, I mean, that's not what you want to hear. Mm -mm. He was in severe pain. So he went to his, his church and uh, he told him and he was just like in tears over this pain. And so uh, they said, well, look, we're just going to pray for you. Like God can heal you. And so they all got together. They got around him. You know, they, they hugged him, they held him and they prayed. Mm. Uh, they took, they took that, that meeting and they dedicated it to praying for this person. He woke up the next day and he was whole. He was wow. healed. Like, I mean, there was nothing. And, and I, and I, I believe this man because I know him personally. And I can tell you what, there's no indication whatsoever that he had any major accident in the wow. past. I mean, he walked fine and he seemed healthy and active. And, uh, he's like, there are tons of people that can testify to the fact that I went into that meeting and I was broken and then God healed me the next day. Amazing. And I woke up from my sleep and I was, I was whole. And so when I hear stories like that, it's like, praise God, he does that. That's exactly what Paul describes when he says Epaphroditus was about to die. Like there yeah. was no doctor in the world could have fixed him, but Paul prayed and God had mercy on him. Now God could have called Epaphroditus home. But Paul mm. praised God that he was healed. So we do believe absolutely that that happens. And and I used to be, um, I used to be a little bit more straight laced about this. I mean, some people would still think I'm pretty straight laced about it. But uh, back in the day, I used to almost not want to pray directly for God to do something because I was afraid that maybe I would be too God's presumptuous. Will. Yeah, I didn't want to pray for something and it not be God's will, and then you know, it just seemed like I was being too bossy. I guess I just, I thought that you had to be really careful about that. But then I realized, you know, God does want us to take the needs Everything. of ourselves and other people's needs to him yes. freely you and to not, not hold anything back. Not. Now, again, there's a humility there. I'm not telling God what to do, but I don't need to, I know how my kids are when my kids need something. I want them to come and tell me what That's it is right. that they need. And I want them to ask me for it. I don't want them to feel uneasy about asking for things. Now there may be times and there have been times where I've said no, but I want them to be able to ask me. And so I think God wants that from us too. So when I pray now, I do pray that God will heal people. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I, sometimes I don't pray if it's your will, because that's understood. If you know me, you know what my heart is. I'm not demanding that God heal this person. I'm asking that he do it. And, uh, and he knows that if he doesn't answer the prayer like I want him to, then I'm going to be okay with it mm -hmm. uh, because he's in charge. But I do ask directly for God to heal people. And I think there's nothing long, wrong with laying hands on people. I think it's touching. We're part of the body. We should be close in fellowship with one another like that. Laying on hands, I think, is, is a wonderful thing. Um, I don't think that it has any power in and of itself inherently. I think that laying on hands is a sign of the body coming together in faith. And I think that it's a wonderful thing. Um, so I support it 100%. So I'm not against that laying on of hands. I'm not against praying for healing. Um, I just believe that there's a difference between asking for God and his authority to answer a prayer and you having the authority to bring something about, time, yeah, it. bring something about yourself. And the apostles did have the authority to do that. I mean, they were given power. He says it in no uncertain terms. Uh, we were talking about this uh, whenever we've been discussing demonology and demon possession, and we're not finished with that. We'll talk about that next week. But uh, he does give special authority to them. And so they exercise that authority. 
um, in, in quite a unique way, I believe. But um, so that's unique, having the authority to heal somebody and to state with confidence, like, you are healed, rise and walk. Mm-hmm. Um, but praying is trusting in the authority of God and having faith that God can. And I would also add this. I think that God loves to heal people. Yes. I think that he does want to heal people. However, I think there are other things that we don't know about Mm -hmm. that somehow interfere with God's desire to heal people. Obviously God wants to heal everybody. Why doesn't he heal everybody? Sometimes his purpose is in their infirmity. Exactly. And, And so that's the thing. Like I, when I ask God to heal somebody, am I asking God to do something that naturally speaking, he doesn't really want to No, I know mm. he wants to. And I, and I know that there's a good chance because he wants to, there's a good chance that he will. So should we be like, absolutely, you know, blindsided with this surprise and shock. If God actually answers our prayers, I, I don't think we, we mm. should. I mean, if he does answer our prayer, it's like, well, isn't that what you prayed for? Doesn't God delight in healing people? Mm-hmm. But at the same time, we shouldn't be surprised if the alternative happens, because like you just said, Christy, sometimes God uses our infirmities for a purpose. And that purpose may have to do with our spiritual well-being. It may have to do with other people. Uh, it may be both. Maybe a both-end situation. But uh, anyways, it, go ahead, Scott. Yeah. No, I was just thinking... It's interesting that it's not discussed in the Bible, because at one point, all of all all of the um, the apostles would have at one point went not done the in Jesus' name I heal you. You know what I mean? Like at some point they might have it might have come out realized they can't do that anymore. Yeah, you know what I mean? Like yeah, it, and- it's kind of interesting. And I was the other thought I was having was. It seems that the healing went down. How many were already martyred by this time? Right. Well, that's where I was headed. Right. So the healing, they're not able to heal as much. um, The more persecution was going on, not just for the apostles, but for all the Christians. Yeah. So it's kind of it's interesting to think about. It is. And and how they how they perceive that. I know that initially, like with the the casting out of demons, we'll talk about Matthew 17. That's a really key passage. But they were like, we, we couldn't do it. Like, we, we've done mm. this. Jesus, we did this a lot. And mm-hmm. now we can't do it. Like, what's going on here? Well, in that situation, again, I don't want to go too deep into it because we're going to have a whole lesson on it. But the idea is you're getting too cocky. Yes. I, I think you're trusting more in yourself than you're trusting in me. And they had doubts about who Jesus was. Mm. Uh, because when Jesus went up onto the Mount of Transfiguration, he only took with him three people, Peter, James, mm-hmm. and John. And right. before he went up, he said, I'm going to die, by the way. And they were like, mm-hmm. what? They, mm-hmm. they had a hard time wrapping their minds around that. So they had doubts. So whenever they're casting out this demon, A, they're not, they're not trusting in Jesus. Mm. Okay. They're trusting in previous experience. Yeah. And, and it doesn't work. And, and Jesus told them, I think he could have, if he wanted to very well have honored their faith from a distance. And they could have cast out the demon anyway, but it was, it was supposed to be an object lesson. Mm -hmm. Like you can't do anything without me. So I think that once they learned that lesson and no doubt the apostles like, like Paul and Peter, they knew that when they were, when they were pronouncing people healed, they knew, I firmly believe that it wouldn't last forever. Right. I I believe they knew that it wouldn't last forever. I, I believe they knew that it was a taste of the kingdom. 
Uh, at least Paul already knew in Romans 11 that the Jews weren't going to repent. Like he calls it a mystery yeah. because he says this wasn't previously known, but I'm telling you now the Jews are being going to be hardened and God's going to the Gentiles. So yeah. I think that whenever Paul, for instance, whenever he reached that point in his ministry where that healing has kind of tapered off, it's not happening as much, mm -hmm. you know, no handkerchief scenarios are taking yeah. place at this point. I think that he knew why that was happening. Yeah. I think he absolutely associated it with the Jews rejecting the message. Um, they're rejecting the signs. So those signs aren't necessary anymore for that purpose. And but, but even for the Gentiles, you would think that they would be used for that. But on the other hand, the Gentiles would think, oh, you know, you must be, you know, Zeus or something as what happens when he's on the island of whatever I've forgotten. Yeah, and the Gentiles. You know what I'm about? Yeah, absolutely. The snake um, in the fire. The snake in the fire and all that. Yeah. Yeah, and and there was that the negative side to things. Yeah, that power could you know yeah, be wrongly in, wrongly interpreted. But yeah. the the general idea, and this is something that I wanted to talk about. And look, I'm going to skip that slide because we've talked about that. I went ahead and talked about some of that stuff already. So this is really where I wanted to to discuss tonight. Um, right now, we're in a waiting period. Okay, we don't have our glorified bodies yet, so we shouldn't expect dominion over disease and death to be the norm right now. Right. Um, why should we? Why should we expect it to be the norm? Has the kingdom come? If you believe it has, well, then it should be the norm. And that's why I think some people, most people who believe that the gift of healing is present in the church today, they believe that the kingdom is already here. Mm -hmm. It's already been realized. But I think that anybody who reads their Bible literally and who just has common sense can see when they look at the world, the kingdom has not come. Mm. All right. Mm. That's why when we pray, we say thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's perfectly done in heaven. Now it's not done now. That's right. So we should keep praying that prayer until it actually comes and it mm -hmm. hasn't come yet. So we shouldn't expect every benefit that one day we will have to be given to us now. So why is it that they had that benefit 2000 years ago? Well, again, let's consider the time period. Uh, sometimes we, we feel, I think, sort of gypped in a way mm -hmm. because we read all these old Testament stories and we're like, man, Israel, they had it good. You know, they had all this stuff. They had the temple and God was in the temple and they had prophets and they had Elijah calling down fire and they had all this stuff. And then, uh, you get to the new Testament and you're like, wow, Jesus was like casting out demons, like no tomorrow. And the disciples were smacking people with handkerchiefs, probably not smacking <laughs> them, but you know what I mean? But I'm saying we feel kind of jib, but let's consider what makes that time unusual. Okay. Mm -hmm. Israel is unusual. Mm -hmm. They were chosen in a special, unique way. He says, you're my chosen treasured possession. Okay. They had not just a building. The building wasn't very important. It was the fact that God was in the building. Like he was meeting with the people there. The priests represented him in a real way because mm -hmm. he was present. And the, the prophets spoke. And sometimes they didn't even have to speak because God would directly speak to the people. That happened too. The angel of the Lord appeared yes. amidst them. And so that was the theocracy. Again, the whole title of the series is Theocracy and Healing because right. theocracy is so closely connected to it. Israel, they had a taste of the kingdom, y'all, in a way that we don't. America is not experiencing the kingdom or a taste of the kingdom like Israel did. All right, because we don't have, we can't go to Washington, D.C., okay, climb Capitol Hill and, and God be in the building there. Like, we, we don't have that That's privilege. That's 
Big no. That's big, right. Big, <laughs> big, big, no. big. You know no. who might be in the building though. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. but it's go. not the it's not <laughs> the the Shekinah glory of God there. No. All right. So obviously that's something they had. Now when did they lose that? Well, seventy A.D. is where God withdrew Himself completely. Now He had already started in that direction. Well, he was he was never in the building in the second temple. Yes, exactly. Right. But yeah. but what's interesting, this is when you look at the Jews and their their beliefs on the subject, they're very they're very weird because in one place they'll say, Yeah, God was there. And in another place they'll say, Well, he was there, but he really wasn't there. Mm -hmm. So essentially what they said, this is how the rabbis interpret it. They said the Shekinah and like overshadows the temple but isn't in the temple. Mm -hmm. So it's this, like Moses having to wear the thing across his face because the glory had gone away, but he didn't want people to know it. Yeah. In their minds, it was like God was present, but not in a visible manner. It wasn't, sure. it wasn't like it was in the first temple, but he was there in some sense. And of course we know that miracles, and we've talked about this when we talked about the feasts, certain miracles like, Right. The scarlet cord on the day yes. of atonement turning white. Like that show God was there. Yes. Okay. He still not pulled himself away. Miracles like that are evidence that God's presence is still in some sense abiding, whether you want to say in or over the temple, like the Jews did, it was still there somehow. Mm -hmm. And Jesus, he did speak in his ministry when he was talking about swearing and oaths. He does say God's in the temple. He does mention that. Yes. But God was not in the temple in the same sense. Kind of glory. And so, yeah. for example, this is the best way to understand it in my mind. Is Jesus present with us right now in a special way as we talk about his word? Yes. He promises that he is. He says, where two or more are gathered oh, buddy, together buddy, in my buddy, name. Buddy, not that verse okay? out of context. Don't do no, it. No, no. Don't, don't do it, buddy. It's not out of context. Okay. <laughs> if you carefully read it. Okay, he shifts in the, in the context between the disciples and church discipline, and he illustrates... He illustrates the kind of presence among them for discipline by going beyond that to the presence of the Shekinah with two or more. So if you carefully read it, and I and this is not this is not me, this is a respected <laughs> Greek scholar. Okay, you can go on Bible Hub and look up Meyer's commentary on this verse, and uh, he goes into this very thing. But the verse does teach that. The idea of the disciples having discipline is founded upon the idea that God is in the presence of believers when they gather. Uh, obviously, I do not believe that we have the same authority of the apostles, but there is a continuity between then and now. I'm not saying there's no continuity at all. I think they had the icing on the cake back then. We yeah. got the cake today. Okay. We still have God in our midst. <laughs> Makes you cake. want cake. Yeah. So, uh, but anyways, um, I believe Jesus is in our midst when we're gathered together in a special sense that he's not with me when I'm an individual. I do believe that coming together involves a special blessing of the Holy Spirit because Jesus said that he mm. said where two or more are gathered. Okay. So now is he with us individually? Of course, but he's with us in a special sense when we gather. Now let's say we're gathered together. He's with us right now. Absolutely true. But is he with us now in the same sense that he's sitting at the right hand of the father? No, no, he's not. So was God present in the temple? Yes. But was he present in the temple in the same sense that he was in the first, the first temple? temple? No. No. Okay. So again, when we talk about God's presence, it's kind of confusing because he's present everywhere. Ain't he? He's omnipresent. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So differentiating God being present and not present is already kind of confusing because in a way he's present everywhere. But the idea is Israel was unique and God 
cast them off. And now we're in the time of the Gentiles and we've been that way for the past 2000 years. Mm. They haven't had any of those privileges for the past 2000 years. Now they do have one privilege. If you want to go to the bare minimum, what do they got? They're preserved. Mm. They're preserved. That's the one thing they got that they will never never have taken away as, as a, as a nation, as a nation. Yes. Thank you, Scott. Not individually as a nation, they will be preserved. Even if they don't have a temple in the Shekinah and all of those other things, Mm -hmm. even if they don't have the priesthood, they have preservation promised to them. Okay. So they have that, but they don't have all those other elements of the theocracy. They don't have a theocracy now. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we're seeing evidence that we're heading back there, but we well, still don't trying to, they're trying to have it. It's, and, but they're in their land, which is already a big step in that direction prophetically. Right. And their theocracy is not the one Jesus is going to want. Absolutely. Right. It's, yeah. it's man-made. It's not, it's not instituted yeah. by God. So that's Israel's theocracy. That's unique. Okay. Right. But another thing that's unique is the offer of the kingdom. I mean, in the first temple, they weren't offered the kingdom like John the Baptist and Jesus preached. Mm. Okay. That was a certain time. They were waiting for it. And all the prophets, they said it's going to come. Like you have a prophet here speaking special revelation from God. That's already unique in and of itself. But he's saying, no, there's going to be an even bigger and better prophet. Because that bigger and better prophet is going to prepare the way for the Messiah. Who's above us all. Who's the angel of the Lord coming to his temple and all that. So not only in the first century did they still have some vestige of the theocracy, but they had John the Baptist preparing the way for Jesus. And then they had Jesus himself. And so all of that is a very unique situation, but going back to um, dominion, this idea of dominion, dominion was never going to begin and end at Israel. It goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. Okay. So whenever you think about Israel, what was Israel meant to remind the world of who's the true God? Mm. Yahweh, Mm -hmm. Yahweh. Okay. So God's got his witness on earth. So Israel has a a line of connection with the true God. They're a light. Two, God always designed mankind to have dominion. And that's why Israel is called a nation of priests and kings. Mm. So this is is all really going to be unpacked and fulfilled completely in the eternal state. So God's going to set up his kingdom for a million or not a million, sorry, (laughs) a thousand years. Get that right for the millennium is what I meant to say. Um, And he's reigning in the midst of Israel. But even that's going to segue, as I have here on the slide, uh, the realized dominion of the bride. That's the church in Israel united together. So what was meant to happen in Eden, which didn't happen, it fell short of happening when Adam and Eve sinned. It will happen after all is said and done. And so in the millennium, we start to see the Gentiles and the Jews coming together. It's true. You do see that. You see, you see this enmity being removed between these two distinct groups. However, in the millennium, who's reigning over who? The Israelites are reigning over the Gentiles. Right. It's a fact. That's why a lot of people don't like premillennial eschatology because it puts the Jews on top and they feel like that negates what Paul says. Wait about second, there being no Jew nor no uh, nor Greek, uh, they say that that's a contradiction. But we're going to be ruling. Yes, ruling yes, but we're unique, Scott, because we're the church. We're in the church age, so we're talking about Gentiles that are in their natural bodies during the millennium. Oh, yeah. Okay, so sorry. yes, the people who are Gentiles now who have a relationship with Jesus through, Christ. But, I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. So when the rapture happens, all Gentiles that are saved. 
they're not going to be ruled over by Jews in the right. millennium. Okay, they're going to have, I would say, a similar role as to angels today. So angels do administer, uh, but they administer obviously in a higher way than like even the president of the United States Correct. administers. And he's not really or administering very much at all. Yeah. But yeah, besides that, the point is you have human rulers down here, right? Over yeah. other humans. But even above that, behind the scenes, we know angels are administering God's will. Yes. That's going to be our role in the millennium. You right. forgot about yeah. George Soros. The George <laughs> Got to be careful. World Economic Forum. <laughs> yeah, World Economic Forum. Sure. <laughs> yeah. So, anyways, um, so yeah, uh, in the millennium, you see distinct groups, and it doesn't seem unified yet because it's not. It's a segue. We're moving towards it. God, He does that. When you look at the dispensations, it's gradual building. Like, does he just deliver the Bible completely to everybody? No. Like, did, like Noah. Like, all right, Noah. Okay, uh, everybody's going to descend from you. I mean, mankind's starting over. I might as well just go ahead and tell you everything you need to know right now. Here you go. No, he doesn't give them at all. Uh -huh. He gradually unfolds his plan. So for a thousand years, we're starting to see the unification of Jew and Gentile until finally, when we have the eternal state, Revelation 21 through 22, some of the most favorite chapters of mine in the Bible. Uh, these, these verses, this is our home. This is what it's all heading towards. There's nothing beyond that except eternity. The the, no, no more transition. That's yeah. right. No more changes, no more programs. It all culminates here. No disease, no distance from God, no death. Healing will be fully accomplished. So the gift of healing, I mean, it was only temporary, wasn't it? You heal somebody of leprosy, hypothetically, Okay, they could get it again. Okay, Lazarus, he was brought back from the dead. We know he That's died right. again. Yeah. All right, so one day we'll have healing fully accomplished and we have glorified bodies. And there'll be nobody in the eternal state. There are some people who disagree with me on this, but I think they're wrong. Nobody in the eternal state will be there without a glorified body because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Mm -hmm. So in the eternal state, everybody's got a glorified body. Everybody has that healing. Now we have no distance from God. God's there. Okay. They says there's no temple. There's no temple in the eternal state. God is just openly displaying Dwelling. his glory. We will walk in the light of it. It's not going to be blocked by a veil. Mm. He's openly displaying his glory. And of course, there's no death because the resurrection has been fully accomplished. Uh, we won't need anybody bringing people back from the dead. Like a lot of these charismatic ministries claim they're doing. We won't need to have that because we'll all have incorruptible bodies and there won't be Israel in the church separated any longer. Uh, won't even have in the millennium one reigning over the other. I mean, we have, uh, the peoples of God revelation 21, three. Uh, it's interesting in the KJV, it says people, but it's kind of hard. Like in English peoples sounds weird. So yeah. when they were trying to translate this, it's like, well, we'll just let them go to the Greek and, and find the nugget, you know, find the insight because peoples just doesn't make for good English, but peoples is the literal, translation all nations are equal though distinct in the eternal state so you're going to have israelites there i don't know what nations will be present okay i don't know how god's going to divvy that up okay uh will there be americans there people who identify as american perhaps i don't know how that's going to work i just know there are nations there mm. and there's not just one nation israel there's right. lots of nations right. but they're all called what the peoples of god before, it was never like that. It was always Israel was the people of God. Mm -hmm. Every other nation, they're not the people of God. Even if they're doing a good job, mm -hmm. repenting like Nineveh, 
okay? Mm-hmm. In that one particular instance, <laughs> uh, they're still not the people of God. Israel was the people of God, okay? At least in that theocratic sense. But in Revelation 21, 3, now it's everybody. Everybody that's in the eternal state um, is part of God's bride. And so the earthly Jerusalem, it's going to coalesce into the heavenly one. No longer is it going to be about like that Palestinian stretch of land. Right. Okay. What what will be Israel? Israel will be the whole world. Oh, yeah. And the new Jerusalem. What's the new Jerusalem? It's not the small Jerusalem that exists today, or even in the millennium. The one in the millennium will pale in comparison to this one in the eternal state that's so high. It's what, 1,200 miles high? It's the size of half of North America. Yeah, I mean, this is very different. But but God promises the Jews a certain, a specified area of land, right? He does specify. He does, and and they they will be given that specified land in the millennium. Yes. Um, absolutely. And of course, all that's allotted out. It mentions this tribe gets this portion, all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but in the eternal, eternal state, state yes. it's we're not talking about the old Jerusalem. We're talking about Jerusalem coming down. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So the a lot the of people Jerusalem. a lot of people think that like the new Jerusalem is patterned after the old Jerusalem. No, no, no it's no. the other way around. Yeah. The old Jerusalem was always patterned after the new Jerusalem. Yes. What is the new Jerusalem? It's God's dwelling place in heaven. It existed long before Jerusalem was chosen by God. Yeah. Long before Israel was chosen by God, God already had people who were called apart in his. I mean, Abel, for example, the first believer that we know of in, in the biblical record to die. Yeah. Right. He was already part of God's, you would call uh, like the Israel of God, the heavenly Israel. Okay. And, um, and, and so I do believe that we can, and uh, there are dispensationalists who disagree, but I do think that Christians today, the bride, uh, make up Israel of God. I do believe that. Um, I do believe that God's got a plan for fleshly genetic Israel. And that's where, like covenant theologians, Calvinists would disagree with me. I have a friend who disagrees with me on this. Like, I'm like, I agree with you that we're all children of Abraham. If you're a believer. However, while we are children of Abraham and have a stake in the heavenly Jerusalem, earthly Jerusalem is the particular inheritance of earthly Israel. And I'm not earthly Israel. Right. I'm not. So I don't have, I don't have any stake in that. Um, But you know what? I don't need one. You think about it. Like I don't need one because my stake is in the, eternal state Mm -hmm. and any Jew who truly understands these things. Okay. will say, if you got to choose between the earthly Jerusalem or the heavenly Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem is the one that you want. And so hopefully that makes sense, but um, let's wrap it up right here and then we'll be done. Church age distinctives. What makes us unique? Well, right now, all the sons of God, those who are saved, uh, that's a spiritual thing. So we don't have all the bodily privileges. Uh, I, I expect to get sick. I won't get sick in the eternal state, right? But I'm going to get sick right now. And when I get sick right now, I pray that I get better. I pray for other people. And God often heals in a miraculous way. But we should be accustomed to the idea of infirmity physically until one day we receive our glorified bodies, which means there's a place for medicine. There's a place for going to the doctor and elderberry syrup and elderberry syrup. Amen. Um, so we can't expect all the aspects of our inheritance to be given before the kingdom comes. So spiritually, we do have dominion in a sense, like we have regeneration. I'm born again. 
So my spirit has overcome. Like the devil has no claim on me. Um, I know that I'm eternally secure and I'm not of the world. And even if I sin, I'm still in God's forever family. So I have that going for me. And that's the greatest thing of all. I mean, when Jesus talked about the 70 casting out demons, he says, don't rejoice in that you're casting out demons. Rejoice that your names are written in the book. So the greatest part of our dominion has already been accomplished. That is, we're born again. Uh, and of course, we have practical strength from the Holy Spirit to overcome sin on a daily basis. If, if we're trusting in the Lord and we're fellowshipping with one another. Um, and lastly, we are still under the administration of angels. This is something that will change one day. So the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 6, and we'll talk more about this on Wednesday when we discuss demonology, but um, we will one day judge the angels somehow. And I don't know what this means. Um, it's kind of confusing, but the idea is the children of God will be over the angels in God's order of things one day. Right now, we're not. Right now, we're still under the, you could say, the tutorship, okay, or the tutelage right. of the angels. So they minister to us. Um, they are more intelligent than we are. Mm -hmm. They're more powerful than we are. It's sort of like a child in, a, in an old household, like back in the 1800s, you know, the butler. Listen, maybe the butler has even been given authority from the daddy. Like, listen, you punish my kid. If they're not, if they're not listening to you, if they're not doing their studies, if they're not doing their chores, you have every authority granted you to, to discipline them. Okay. Mm -hmm. That did happen. Um, however, one day the kid's going to grow up and who's going to be in charge. Is it going to be the butler mm -hmm. or is it going to be the child? It's going to be the child because they will be the heir of the house one day. So that's the analogy that scripture often gives when talking about our inheritance. And so what should we do? We should evangelize. Should we try to reconstruct society? Well, if you're thinking about reconstructing society in the sense of, okay, let's bring back the Mosaic law. Um, let's try to bring in the kingdom. Let's try to help Jesus bring in the kingdom and we can speed things up. Like the kingdom will come sooner if we reconstruct society. That if that's what you like mean, that. no, that's wrong. If you mean, should we try to reconstruct society by changing people's hearts through evangelism? Yes. Yes. We should try to do that. But will, according to the Bible, will we ever do that? No. No. Let's just be realistic. What's going to happen. Are we going to bring in Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem or is Babylon going to be the natural result of things? That's what you can expect to happen next. Yeah. That doesn't mean that battles aren't won every day and revivals don't happen. Okay. It just means that as far as the world as a whole goes, I don't believe given what the Bible talks about concerning the end times, we're going to be able to change the world. So when people build their theology on that, I think they made a mistake. Prayer. Should we make decrees? No. Decreeing implies that you have authority. I don't have that authority yet. One day, will I have authority in the eternal state? Yeah, I'll reign with Christ. I'll reign over death. I'll reign over disease. Won't have to worry about those things. I'll even have authority over the angels in some sense. But do I have any of that authority now? No. no. So what should I do? Pray, pray, pray in faith, pray expecting, pray humbly, knowing that God's in charge and you're not. And so anyways, um, Last reminder, the greatest dominion possible for a child of God is not automatic. Our kingdom experience is not set because the kingdom itself has not been established. And I think that I can end our series in tonight's lesson with one word that we all uh, believe in very much, and that's Maranatha.
Mm-hmm. Our Lord come. That's when the kingdom is going to come, when he comes. And we're looking forward to it, Lord. And so if you ever have any questions and you're listening to this podcast, always reach out to us and we'll be happy to answer your questions. God bless you and have a good night.